As we continue our We Believe series and kind of start to hit the home stretch, somebody who's near and dear to me is going to be teaching today. I'll let you see who that is in just a moment. But before, um, and as Trace, our scripture reader, comes up, I'd like to teach you a refrain. It's this. Blessed are the ones who Chapter 18, I'm going to start with uh, verse 23. Therefore, Jesus is speaking here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Well, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Well, the servant, he fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay everything back. The servant's master, he took pity on him. He canceled the debt and he let him go. Blessed are the ones who forgive, for they shall be forgiven. But now that servant, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him hundred silver coins and he grabbed him and he began to choke him and he said pay back what you owe me and his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me I'll pay you back but he refused instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt happened they were greatly distressed and they went and they told their master everything that had happened and then the master called the servant in you wicked servant he said I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had had on you in anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or a sister from your heart. Mm 
word of the Lord. for leading us in that really meaningful time of prayer this morning. Um, if we haven't met church, my name is Ashley. I'm one of the co-lead pastors. Hi, thanks for waving. I've never had anyone, hey, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at our church. If you're watching online, thanks for joining us. Um, hey, as summer is winding down, I just have to say once and for all, one of the most pleasant surprises that I have encountered and that our family has encountered since moving to Michigan State has been the beaches. Can I get an amen? That's our son this past summer, living his best life at Millennium Park. Okay, our sand pails runneth over church, don't they? And as a result, our, quick, our family has quickly become a beach family like never before. And yet I completely underestimated just how many places into which sand finds itself. I'm talking towels. I'm talking trunks. I'm talking toddler tushies. Everywhere. This stuff is everywhere. And yet, because it's in abundance around these parts of our state, it's going to help us this morning. It's going to help us unpack these four words of the creed where we find ourselves today. See, in our text that Trace read for us, there's a king, and he wants to settle accounts. And there's one man who owes 10,000 talents. Now, these aren't talent like you might find for ancient Near East Scott talent, if that were a show. We're talking a talent, the highest currency, uh, the unit of currency back in that time worth about 6,000 denarii or 20 years of a day laborer's wages. These are denarii. So we have servant number one. Let's do a little bit of math. He owes 10,000 talents which equals about 60,000 days of work. And that's about 125 years if you break that down into 365 days. And if you take our current dollar, US dollar, and say, okay, let's just call that $50,000 a year. This first servant owes the master $8.25 million. That's a lot of moolah that I don't have. That's a lot of money. So here's what I thought. I said, okay, we've got sand in Michigan. If we're doing the math, let's say there are approximately 2 million grains of sand, don't worry, I googled it for you, that can fit in a cup, depending on a number of factors, like the size of the sand grains. That is 4.125 cups of sand that represent the debt of the first servant. 
This is a visual for us. I found the bags that were outside of our house late at night that stopped the flood from coming into our house. I found the sand people. I didn't have to go to the beach. Found it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now let's look at servant number two. Servant number two owes 100 denarii, which is about 100 days work. You multiply that by the same $50,000 a year, and servant number two owes servant number one $13,698.63, if we're being exact. Here's the deal. You take that same measurement, you assume there's two million grains of sand in a cup. That comes out to about one-third of a teaspoon in comparison. One-third of a teaspoon of sand to represent the debt of the second servant, which is, church, one six-hundred-thousandth of the first servant's debt. 4.125 cups compared to one-third of a teaspoon. And the second servant, as Trace read to us, was thrown into prison by the first. There's a part of the Matthew 18 parable that perhaps gets underemphasized if you've heard it before. The parable isn't just about the act of forgiving others. That's true. It's also about who the first servant represents. The first servant here is a representative of the king. So in essence, when the servant shows up to anyone else in his midst, everything he does reflects the one that he serves. So when he throws the second servant into prison, you see what I mean? Here's what we have to reckon with, church. It is no longer an option as part of our being a Jesus people for the sake of the world, for forgiveness to remain a personal perk that we individually enjoy. As the church, the estuary, the masterpiece that Tim and Troy talked about last week, we must also serve as faithful proxies, ones authorized to act on behalf of another, in this case, the king, whose spirit-empowered forgiveness reflects the heart of that king, the one who sent Jesus and who now sends us into the world. That's where we're starting this morning. Before we dive even more deeply into the text, though, as has been our custom throughout this whole series in the Apostles' Creed, would you stand, if you're willing and able, and let's recite together the creed up to this phrase this morning. Join me now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. The forgiveness of sins, this phrase, though four words long, was a pretty late addition to the creed. And as is sometimes the case with the church, there was some drama amongst believers in the fourth century, if you can believe it. Here's what we have to understand. Under Roman rule, Christians were still facing real persecution at that time. Leaders were being imprisoned. In the year 303, Diocletian, this guy, ordered Christians' property taken. Their books and sacred writings burned. Their places of worship demolished. Some did die as martyrs. However, some leaders and Christians, they were given an option. The option was this, if you would just sacrifice and worship the Roman gods, we'll spare you. We'll spare you persecution. We'll save your life. Imagine, what would you do? Would you sacrifice and renounce your baptism to stay alive? Or would you risk imprisonment and death and refuse to sacrifice to the Roman gods? Here's where it got tricky. After a period of time, Christianity was tolerated and even encouraged again as part of this religious pluralistic society that was being created. And those believers and leaders who had sacrificed to the Roman gods and idols, who are now considered traitors by some in the church. They wanted to be part of the church again, not surprisingly. Well, hold on a minute, traitor. Is there a process to reinstate you? Should you be kicked out forever and ever because of your cowardice? Do you need to be rebaptized? What should be done here? As the religious leaders who were involved, should they be written off forever? Because they decided to save their own lives. Like I said, drama. Eventually, though, there was a call against spiritual elitism. And for the fourth century church, a believer only needed to live out his or her baptism seriously, pointing to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the atoning work that secured the forgiveness of their sins once and for all, period. No questions asked. But not everyone was cool with this. One leader of this contrarian movement was named Donatus. And I kept reading that name, and I was like, Donuts? Don't... don't Donutus, and therefore the Donatists insisted the church was unholy by accepting such clear sinners, as author Justo Gonzalez phrased it. And they went off 
Some went to a faraway place and became isolated from the rest of the church. Some formed their own churches. And here's what I'm wondering this morning, Marcel. Do we still, as the church in America, as the church in West Michigan, as the church in Granville and Grand Rapids, do we still have just a little bit of donatism mixed in? Might we, to get personal, might you have a version of certain folks who fall within the category of such clear sinners? It's because they vote for that specific party, right? Or maybe it's because they do or don't choose to wear a mask. Perhaps it's that they're the ones left bashing the church on their way out. Or perhaps it's because they're the ones who stayed at the church. Whatever rationales and measures we call upon, yes, some might be thoughtful on our part. But it also could be that we have not moved from truly understanding Jesus' work on the cross as simply a personal perk to forgiveness being a marker of what makes the body of Christ a faithful proxy on Jesus' behalf. So how do we sift out this donatism? How do we represent well the king who sends us out into the world? Disclaimer, today isn't about answering all the questions that we might have about the mechanics of forgiveness. There are many questions that we could ask. Today isn't going to be a flow chart that you'll be able to easily follow necessarily, like did the person confess wrongdoing, yes or no? If yes, forgive them. If no, wait approximately 30 days and think about it some more. This isn't that kind of invitation. There are good questions that we could ask. Does the person have to be physically present to forgive? Do they have to admit something's wrong? How many times is too many times to forgive someone? This last question is the same question, in fact, that Peter asks Jesus in Matthew 18, just before Jesus launches into this parable of the unmerciful servant. How many times, Peter asks, shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? And if you know that part of the story, Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. That could be a whole nother sermon if we wanted it to be. The point is these questions that we ask can be good. They can be valid. But today I draw our attention to that which I believe Jesus was drawing the disciples' attention. Not the details necessarily, but to the drastically radical nature of both the king's character and the first servant's stinginess. So let's look at the character of the king. This king, he was relational. He wanted to settle accounts with the people that he ruled. 
We know this when we look at Romans, but then God demonstrated God's love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died, right? We explored some of the aspects of the Father's character week one and a beautiful display that Troy laid out for us of who the Father really is. We understood better Jesus' birth throughout this series and identifying with us as a human man and the intricacies of that. So this king, he's relational, but he's also just. The debt was going to be repaid somehow. Right? Why did Jesus need to die? Our sins separated us from God and the wages of sin is death. Right, Romans 6. We've touched on the just nature of God in this series, that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead to make things right. If you remember, we talked about he will come back to make things right in the world, but also in us. These threads are affirming the king's character here in this parable. But here's what I wonder, Mars Hill. I wonder if all of us have truly encountered not just the relational aspect of this king, not just this king as just, but this third characteristic that we see, and that's this king as so radically generous. He didn't give the first servant more time to cancel this $8.25 million debt. He erases it all together, gone. Wiped clean. That is significant. I don't know what the servant did to rack up such a massive debt, whether it was gambling, asset mismanagement, defaulting on loans, not paying credit card bills on time, but part of realizing and receiving the generosity of the king is understanding and sitting with the weight of just how massive the debt really is. Church, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your life story is. Whether in this room is represented liars or cheaters, whether we've been arrogant, egotistical, or have hurt someone else physically, spiritually, emotionally. I don't know your debt. But can I tell you, one of the things I had to do in preparing for this morning was to consider mine. The weight of that. To consider how, how could time and time and time again, even after my most grievous downfalls, could God still say, beloved daughter, forgiven? How is that possible? How can it be? I'd be remiss standing before you this morning if I didn't allow that work to be done in my own heart today. When I've been honest about the reality and impact of my sin, the kindness and generosity of God's forgiveness achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross is not just a warm, fuzzy thought. It compels me to worship. It compels me to worship. 
because of how good this king really is. Have you ever taken that kind of space? Not to be ashamed by your sin, but to be made aware of both the gravity of it and the forgiveness of God in God's presence. To receive it without trying to justify or deny God's forgiveness with the goodness of your own effort. The religious leaders, they did that. Romans 10.2, Paul testified that these religious leaders were zealous for God, but they sought to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, ironically, that's what part got in the way of them experiencing Jesus when Jesus was right there. As J.I. Packer put it, we hate admitting that there's seriously anything wrong with us. Anything that God or man might seriously hold against us. But what would it be like, Mars Hill, if we stopped checking boxes to put down the measuring stick, to lay down appearances and striving and be completely held secure and in awe of God's presence, reminded of the forgiving work that only Christ could accomplish on your behalf? What would that be like? What would our church and our community be like if we lived into that reality? The stakes are high. We'll see forgiveness as a perk, like a spiritual punch card, and we'll allow and will not allow it to compel us into our work as ambassadors, sent to be proxies of the king, It'll cause us to hold personal grudges that overcome our thoughts and steal our joy. It'll justify careless words and actions directed toward others. It'll cause us to silently relish in others' public downfall with no interest in the hope of restoration or redemption. It'll cause us to become a church obsessed with identifying others' sin, but refusing to see or repent of our own. We recall Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's what we have to see is drastically important to that passage in particular. I love how Gonzalez says this. At first, these words seem to imply a sort of transaction. But the matter is much, much deeper. Because here's the kicker, Mars Hill. Often the reason we do not forgive others is that we ourselves are not convinced that we are forgiven. We can know about it. We can read about it. But if you yourself are not convinced that by Jesus' work on the cross, you yourself are forgiven. How can we forgive other people? The stakes are high. We see this sort of attitude reflected in the stinginess of the servant. I'll run through these characteristics more quickly. This servant is vengeful, 
He inflicts pain on the second servant, goes to choke him, right? He's just. He demands that the debt would be repaid, and yet he's unmerciful. He throws the other servant in jail. Here's something I noticed over the past week in my study church. Maybe you notice it too. There's a shared characteristic between the king and the servant. Both the king and the servant were interested in justice. Both of them are. But the first servant inflicted pain and withheld mercy. The first servant clearly had so easily forgotten the king's generosity, or if he had remembered, he wasn't convinced. The difference here between the king and the servant is that God's justice and forgiveness are not at odds. They're not at odds against each other. Psalm 99, verse 8, I love this verse. You answered them. You answered your people, O Lord our God. You are forgiving God to Israel and yet an avenger of their evil practices. Both. Therefore, church, we have to understand God's forgiveness does not negate justice. Our choosing to forgive as proxies as the people of God, church, doesn't negate the need for justice and a rejection of evil. Forgiveness is not human leniency and weakness. It's spirit-empowered mercy and kindness that is meant to reflect the Father's heart for the world. That's the difference. And in that way, you know, perhaps you've thought before forgiveness, you know, like if I forgive, if I forgive, I'll feel better, right? You've heard the adage about forgiveness or unforgiveness rather is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to fall dead. Have you heard that? I was taught, I don't know where I got that from, but I was taught it somewhere. But here's the deal, forgiveness is not only and ultimately for our benefit, so that we feel like better Christians, so that we have clean consciences. We have to get this. We are called to forgive others as a representation of the generous King of Kings who sent us into the world as the church to display and proclaim his goodness. If you're asking, why don't people like the church anymore? Because we are the most unforgiving, forgiven people. It's not rocket science. If we are not forgiving and yet we are forgiven, how is the world going to know our God? That's the question that I have for us this morning. I'm getting a little fired up. Hold on, tone it down. We still got some to go. Okay. Still got some. Thank you. Thank you. Whew. All right. I really do think this is going to be crucial for us, Mars Hill. We, we have to understand this. And if we choose to, I think we're going to see God move in ways that we have not seen God move before. I really do think that. Forgiveness is costly. There's no doubt about that. It might cost you your pride. It might cost some time. It may not feel good. It's also countercultural. 
Because right now we're living in a culture that loves canceling people out. We're living in a culture that says we're done with you forever. Even as the church, am I wrong? We're living in this time where forgiveness is costly, it's countercultural, and yet it's part of our witness. Story quickly. Back in 2015, this was one of the most meaningful trips of my life. A team from our former church, we went on a journey to the South to look more closely at the impact of racial injustice in the church. And our travels took us to Charleston, South Carolina. There, I sat in the basement for Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church, where just two years prior, a man named Dylan Roof had walked in and killed nine of the congregants there who had also been assembled for Bible study in that exact same basement. It was one of the most eerie feelings I'd ever felt to hold that space to read from the word of God where there had been so much horror. But not so long after, at Dylan Roof's trial, some of the family members of those who had been slain showed up. And many of them, instead of raging at their family member's killer, instead of hurling insults and epithets at this person, many of them offered, miraculously, they offered him forgiveness. Here's just one quote from the sister of our sister who is now gone to Payne Middleton Doctor. She said to Dylan Roof, I acknowledge that I am very angry. Pause, Forgiven, forgiving other people does not mean we need to dissociate from our feelings. I think that's very important to name. I acknowledge that I'm very angry, she said, but one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And then she said, I pray God on your soul. Mars Hill, we are the family that love built. The love of Jesus Christ. We don't have to look far to find the offenders, the gossipers, the murderers, the extortionists, the narcissists, the manipulators, the thieves. Jesus didn't have to look far either. If you remember his final moments on the cross and who was to his right and to his left. Yeah, as Troy and I were talking about this week, Troy said, what were his words? Father, forgive, forgive them. Some of his final words, because he is the generous king. So four very specific invitations for you, Mars Hill. We're about to move to the table. Some of you need to be with the king in these next few moments. You need to sit under the holy weight of his generosity and love for you as the spirit searches your heart. You need to be reminded that you are forgiven. 
So if that's you, I want you to take that time and be with your king who forgives generously. Some of you, for these minutes, have been thinking about how you might need to forgive a debt. We've got prayer walls in the back, Brian's in the back corner. Some of you may just need to write that name down and stick it in the prayer wall, and our staff will pray for you. Some of you need to go see Brian and say, I need to forgive a debt because I was forgiven much, and this person owes me this in comparison, and you need someone to hold that space with you and pray. Don't leave this place if that's for you. Some of you need to ask for forgiveness. I'll never forget, there was a time I was uh, working at a different church, and Dylan was about to play worship for a group of middle schoolers. And I see him running down the hallway, sweating, as he does. Because, you know, he works out a lot. But he looked at me, he said, I could not get on that stage and lead worship for those kids without asking for your forgiveness. I'll never forget that. It was Matthew 5, 24. If you remember at the altar that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person, then come offer your gift. Here's the deal. You can't force it. It's for the one who's been wrong to forgive, but you can show up with humility and attempt to be reconciled, church. Perhaps you need to ask forgiveness this morning. Finally, perhaps you want to reignite your witness. I brought these jars because I think I'm going to keep these up for a while. Maybe your next step at home is to create two jars just like this. Maybe you do this with your kids. You have one that's 4.125 cups full and the other that's a third of a teaspoon, and you keep that in front of you to be reminded of just how much you've been forgiven and what that compels you to do by the Spirit's power. So as we move to the table, I pray that you're encouraged this morning. I pray that you see a king who loves you so much. And I pray that you know without a shadow of a doubt that there's a spirit inside of you that empowers you to do the very same thing that Jesus did for you. And how much different might our world look? So, Marcel, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup, that is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me now. Holy Spirit, we pray that 
by your power, you would be for us in this meal, spiritual nourishment. Would you strengthen us, God? For those of us who need to be reminded of your forgiveness, would we sense that so tangibly today? For those of us who need to move into being proxies once again of representing you, our King, by your spirit through this meal, would you do that? God, nourish us as your church. We'll give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Family, I can't help but think of the churches in Haiti, our brothers and sisters in Haiti and Afghanistan, who believe in this same mystery that we're about to proclaim together. This is the beauty of the church. It's not just for us here in West Michigan. It's global. It's global good news for the whole world. So this is the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All is ready again. Brian is in the back. We've got individual serving cups for you if you haven't been here in a couple weeks real gluten-free bread. You can take a piece of bread in the cup and take this space. Church, receive who you are, the body of Christ.